Foreign Relations Committee uh, will come to order. Today's the Committee on Foreign Relations will consider the nomination of Thomas Shannon to serve as Undersecretary for State for Political Affairs. We welcome Ambassador Shannon and thank him for the more than 30 years of service to our country. And uh, as I said to him when he came into our office, and I'm sure, Ben, you said the same thing, all of us are gratified when people who've committed their life in this way uh, end up uh, uh, ascending to these types of positions. So we're very happy for you. The Undersecretary for Political Affairs manages regional and bilateral policy issues and oversees the bureaus for Africa, East Asia, and the Pacific, Europe, and, and Eurasia, the Near East, South and Central Asia, the Western Hemisphere, and international organizations. Uh, uh, just a note to staff, we could say the world, but uh, <laughs> a little easier, thank you. The nomination we are considering today for the most senior and under influential undersecretary in the State Department. This is a key nomination for this committee at this time. The person that the Senate confirms for this job will not just serve this administration, but will also be an institutional bridge to the next administration. With that, I turn to Senator Cardin for any opening comments he may wish to make. Well, Mr. Chairman, let me first thank you for the speed in which uh, this confirmation hearing has been uh, set, uh, and I really appreciate it. And I know your commitment so that the State Department has a full complement in dealing with the urgent international issues. There's not a shortage of that. Uh, we couldn't have a better person than Ambassador Shannon, and we thank you very much for your career of public service. We thank you and your family for what you've done for our country. Uh, this uh, position has been vacated by um, Secretary Sherman, who did an outstanding job representing the interests of our country. Uh, as I think uh, uh, Senator Corker has already pointed out, Ambassador Shannon's a career diplomat. He's currently the counselor of the State Department. He was the ambassador to Brazil. He was the Assistant Secretary of State and Senior Director of the National Security Council staff for the Western Hemisphere Affairs. He's had posts in Venezuela, South Africa, and other critically important positions. Mr. Chairman, as, you, as you, I think you pointed out, we have conversations with key nominees before we actually have the formal hearings. And it gives us a chance to sort of explore and get a sense as to the commitment uh, to the issues that we're concerned about. And I just want to share with my colleagues, in my conversation with Ambassador uh, Shannon, I was very impressed with his understanding of the importance of this committee, our oversight role, and the critical importance for transparency, openness between the position of Under Secretary of State for Political Affairs and the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And I think that's going to bode well for the type of relationship that we need in order to speak strongly for our country proper oversight role of the United States Senate. I, I do want to mention uh, there's several, many issues. We could talk about the implementation of the Iran agreement and the increased U.S. engagement in the Middle East. Uh, we could talk about Russia's engagement in Ukraine uh, and whether they'll comply and how we will assure that uh, they are held to the standards of the Minsk agreement. And then, of course, Russia's engagement uh, in Crimea, Russia's engagement in Moldova, Russia's engagement uh, in Georgia and now in Syria. But I just want to mention one point that I know the chairman and I are going to be very much engaged with you, Ambassador Shannon, and that is the advancement of good governance, transparency, human rights, anti-corruption. And the focal point this year was on the TIP report. 
Uh, you hold a critically important position to make sure that TIF report, which is the gold standard for judging conduct globally on the commitment to fight modern-day slavery trafficking, is held to the highest standards. And the, the tier ratings are based solely on the facts on the ground. And uh, I just, uh, in our conversations, I know you're committed to that, but we want you to know this committee is going to do everything we can to support that type of, a, of an analysis on the tier ratings of the countries of the world. And with that, Mr. Chairman, I look forward to, 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 uh, to our exchange. Well, thank you for bringing up the TIP issue, and we talked extensively about that in our meeting, too, and certainly one of the questions I'll ask later will be about that, but uh, I really appreciate you emphasizing that in an appropriate way. And with that, uh, we will turn to our nominee. Our first nominee is Ambassador Thomas Shannon, who has been nominated to serve as Undersecretary for Political Affairs. Ambassador Shannon earned the rank of Career Ambassador, the highest in the Foreign Service. Currently, he serves as counselor of the State Department, a position he has held since 2013. Previously, Ambassador Shannon has served as our ambassador to Brazil, Assistant Secretary for State for Western Hemisphere Affairs, Special Assistant to the President, Senior Director at the National Security Council, and assignments abroad, apparently having some difficulty uh, keeping a job. Um, he has received a Bachelor of Arts from the College of William and Mary and both a Master's and Doctorate of Philosophy from Oxford University. Uh, we thank you for being here. Uh, we know you may have some people to introduce, which we hope you will, and we look forward to your testimony. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman, Senator Cardin, members of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Uh, thank you for this opportunity to appear before you today as President Obama's nominee to be the next Undersecretary for Political Affairs. I very much appreciate the opening remarks, especially the, the comments regarding TIP, and I'm going to be very happy to answer those questions as we advance uh, in this uh, hearing. Uh, as you can imagine, I'm very honored by this nomination. I'm also humbled by the nomination. Uh, its pedigree is distinguished from its first occupant, uh, Robert Murphy, to such great diplomats as Philip Habib, Walter Stoisel, Larry Eagleberger, Tom Pickering, Bill Burns, and Wendy Sherman. The position of undersecretary has been defined by extraordinary quality, ability, and the dedication of its occupants. Uh, throughout my career, I've sought to serve in challenging and complicated places where the power and influence of our great republic could be brought to bear in pursuit of our interests and promotion of our values. As you consider my nomination, uh, I can offer you the following. First, I have dedicated my life to public service. My foreign service career began in 1984 and it has spanned five administrations, two Democratic and three Republican. Second, I understand the efficacy of American power and purpose. I've worked in countries and regions in transition and transformation. From Latin America to Africa, I've seen the important and positive influence the United States can bring in helping countries move from authoritarian to democratic governments, from closed to open economies, from autarkic or import substitution models of development to development based on regional integration and from isolation to globalization. In this process, I have seen and understood the attraction we hold for many and the unique role we play in shaping world events and order. Third, I believe that diplomacy is an act of advocacy. Our great diplomats from John Jay to John Kerry have had a deep understanding of power politics and its global dimensions. They have used this understanding to protect and advance American interests. However, the vision of order and purpose they brought to American diplomacy was infused with values that reflect our democratic ideals and our conception of individual liberty. Fourth, I know how to get things done and what needs to be done. 
As noted, my professional experience has spanned assignments in the White House, the State Department, international organizations, and embassies. And as the chairman noted, I probably do have a tr problem keeping a job. I'm familiar with the machinery of our foreign policy and diplomacy, and I have experience at every level. Finally, I understand the importance of consultation with the Congress. I entered the Foreign Service during the Central American Wars. This was a time of sharp partisan and institutional divide on our policy in the region. This divide limited our ability to successfully implement our policy. It was only when broad consensus was formed around an agenda based on democracy, human rights, and economic development that we were able to form a bipartisan approach to Central America. This experience shaped how the legislative and executive branches faced foreign policy challenges in Colombia and the broad partisan support enjoyed by Plan Colombia and its successful implementation led to further bipartisan cooperation on hemispheric trade policy, reconstruction and development in Haiti, and the Merida Initiative in Mexico. These experiences taught me that engagement with Congress is an essential part of our foreign policy making proce uh, process and its only long-term guarantee of success. As noted, if confirmed, I will consult with the Congress, I will consult with this committee, I will consult with its staff. As I reflect on my experience in American diplomacy, I'm struck by the tremendous changes I have seen in three decades. But as dramatic as these changes have been, they will not compare to what awaits us. The factors that are driving change, political, economic, social, and technological, are accelerating due to globalization. This, in turn, will increase the velocity of change and challenge in the world and challenge our ability to understand and respond to events in the world. Um, during the past two years as counselor of the department, I've worked on a variety of issues that have been emblematic of the kinds of changes we face. First, I worked with our partners in Africa to fight jihadist ideology that has spread from the Middle East to Somalia, from the Middle East into Somalia, Nigeria, and Mali, along an historic fault line of conflict that divides Northern Africa and the Sahel. Second, I've worked with our special envoy to South Africa on a long, complicated, and ongoing effort to bring peace to South Sudan. Third, I worked in Southeast Asia on, lower, on the Lower Mekong Initiative, a sustainable development effort designed to improve coordination and cooperation among the countries of the Lower Mekong River Basin to ensure the long-term viability of, of the river as a source of food, energy, and water. Fourth, I worked on maritime security, counter-piracy, and trade issues within the Indo-Pacific region through the Indian Ocean Rim Association. Finally, I worked to develop a response to the crisis of unaccompanied Central American child migrants who appeared in large numbers across our southwest border in the summer of 2014. The result was the Alliance for Prosperity, a plan and program designed by Guatemala and Honduras and El Salvador with the help of the Inter-American Development Bank to address the root causes of migration in the communities of origin of these children. If confirmed, it will be my assignment to ensure that the Department of State, under the direction and guidance of the President and the Secretary of State, can meet the challenges and seize the opportunities that confront us. It would be my job to ensure that our bureaus and missions and the remarkable individuals who serve there have the policy and program, programmatic guidances to be successful and the high-level access, assistance, and support to, to shape and implement our foreign policy. This is a responsibility that I take seriously and again acknowledge the important role of the Congress. Let me close by thanking the President and Secretary Kerry for the confidence they've placed in me. Let me thank you, Mr. Chairman, Senator Cardin, and the Senate senators present for this opportunity to appear before you. Finally, let me thank my family. Today I have present with me my mother, Barbara Shannon, along, along with my father, who she instilled in me the values that led to my public service. I have with me also my brothers Paul and Terry, 
both special agents of the FBI and both veterans of Afghanistan and Iraq conflicts. I would also like to recognize my wife, Gisela, and our sons, Thomas and John. Unfortunately, they're not here today. I would not be here today without them. As my colleagues in the Foreign Service know well, our service to country is a family affair, and the joys and dangers of that service abide in our families. Thank you very much, and I look forward to your questions. Well, thank you very much. Uh, we typically are much nicer on people coming before us when their kids are here, but when your mother's here, it'll probably be uh, much, much the same. Um, obviously, uh, just for the record, we talked in our office about the TIP report. We were very dissatisfied. Many of us are very dissatisfied with the way it was handled this last year, and I just, for the record, wonder if you would share with us uh, how you plan to, to handle it differently this year. Well, thank you very much. Uh, I had the opportunity to talk about the TIP report with um, uh, a whole range of members of, of this committee, uh, and I was struck uh, by the consensus of concern about the TIP report, and this worries me deeply. And uh, as you noted, uh, the TIP report is a gold standard report, uh, and it's one in which uh, the credibility that the report holds, both in the Congress and publicly, uh, is essential, uh, an essential part of that gold standard. Uh, and so it will be my intention, working with my colleagues in the, in the State Department who manage this process, both on the Functional Bureau side, in JTIP, on the Regional Bureau side, and especially in our embassies, uh, that we have as clear and as transparent a process as possible, uh, and the one, the one that can address the concerns uh, expressed. Uh, trafficking in persons is an important issue for me. It's an issue that I've dealt with at different moments in my career, especially as a Chief of Mission. The information that our Office on Trafficking in Persons collects regarding the, the actions of states, governments, municipalities regarding trafficking comes from our embassies in many instances, and so how our embassies respond and how they engage with uh, the Office of Trafficking in Persons is an important part of this process. And I've seen this work, and I know it can work, and so I can assure you, sir, and I can assure members of, of this committee that I will do everything in my power to make sure that we restore the credibility in your eyes of this report and that we can address the concerns you've expressed. Well, we, I appreciate that. I will say in some cases, I would imagine that uh, ambassadors want to see good things happen in the countries that they are involved in. And so I, I hope that while I, I know the ambassadors play a role, in some cases it can be an advocating role for their country, I hope that you will figure out a way to ensure that that doesn't uh, cause things to be out of balance. No, we, we will do that, sir, and I will do that. But I can, I can, I can assure you that uh, the American Foreign Service, as I noted in my remarks, understands our diplomacy as advocacy. And we understand the importance of trafficking in persons uh, to you and, and this committee, broadly to the Congress, but also to the President. And so I will do everything in my power to make sure that this advocacy is, is powerful. Well, in my last comment, uh, you know, certainly I respect tremendously those people who offer themselves for foreign service. I just understand the dynamics that can some sometimes take place, uh, human nature dynamics that can happen on the ground. Um, you've watched and been a part of and worked with so many people who have been in this position. You, you know, gave a litany of those who've come before you, uh, many of which are highly respected, many of whom are highly respected. What is it that, uh, You've watched this, and you've seen how people have operated. Um, what is it that you think you might uniquely do that is different from those uh, who've come before you? Thank you for that question. It's a very good one. Um, to begin with, there is a, a bureaucratic and policy management process 
uh, to this job that infuses the work of, of all undersecretaries. As you noted, we sit atop a variety of bureaus, um, uh, the six geographic bureaus and the bureau that manages international organizations in an effort to manage and focus policy uh, so that it can be as successful as possible. Um, but I'm one of the first nominees, really in a long time, really since Tom Pickering, uh, who comes with uh, strong experience uh, in Latin America and Africa, the larger developing world, and, the, and really a world of transition and transformation. Uh, and although my purview will now be the globe, and I've already, uh, over the last two years, done a variety of work in the Middle East, uh, more deeply in Africa, uh, in Southeast Asia, and in the Indo-Pacific region, uh, I do think that I understand the impact and the importance of helping countries manage transition and transformation. And I understand how the United States has done it in a variety of environments, but especially in, in Africa and, and uh, Latin America. I began my career in Central America during a transition from authoritarian government and military government to democratic government. Uh, I've worked in a variety of countries that were making a similar transition, such as in Brazil and in South Africa from 1992 to 96. Uh, I was part of a U.S. team that helped manage and promote a transition from an apartheid government uh, to the government of, of Nelson Mandela. And so I, I think I bring an understanding of transition and transformation. I think I understand, I, I bring an understanding of post-conflict societies, and I think I can inject and, and add a dimension uh, to our foreign policy that could be very important. Well, thank you very much, and with that I'll turn to uh, Ranking Member Cardin. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Again. Mr. Ambassador, thank you for your service, and we very much appreciate the members of your family that are here, and we, we do recognize this as a, a family commitment, and we thank them also. You mentioned your experiences with Congress in Central America conflict, that there was deep division in Congress, but where we spoke in unity, the United States was stronger in its carrying out its mission. There's been a division in Congress over the support for the Iran Agreement. But there's been no division in Congress about the importance of the Congressional Review and the ongoing commitment that Congress has in the implementation of the Iran Agreement. The Iran Review Act that was passed uh, in a very bipartisan vote, almost unanimous vote, in the United States Congress spells out certain continuing commitments uh, by the administration to keep Congress informed. We do that because uh, we had a, a conversation yesterday uh, about uh, the compliance with Iran on the agreement. There's already been a violation of the UN resolution dealing with ballistic missiles. How the United States responds to that, to many of us, is an indication on whether we will demand zero tolerance for violations and strict compliance. So we need to be kept informed in a very open way as to how uh, the compliance issues are taking place. They may not elevate to the type of violation that would uh, warrant the United States taking actions to uh, reimpose full sanctions, but they may be of interest as to how we can make sure that there is full compliance with the agreement. We also have the concerns of recognizing that Iran's not going to change its nefarious activities, particularly as it relates to the support of terrorism and its human rights issues. 
that may engage us in a way to how we counter those activities. So being able to trace the funds that Iran will be receiving through sanction relief and how they use those funds, it's going to be of great interest uh, to the members of this committee and to the members of Congress. So I, I just would like to uh, get your assurances that you've given us about keeping us fully engaged. We know what the law requires, but what I'm asking for is, uh, as you pointed out in your relationships with Congress in the past, that we're going to have a very open relationship and full information so that we can carry out our critically responsible responsibilities of oversight. Oh, thank you very much, Senator. Um, again, I, I appreciate the question, and I, I especially uh, appreciate its intent and purpose. Um, the implementation of the JCPOA uh, is going to be what makes it a good agreement or a bad agreement. Uh, and we are intent on ensuring that that implementation is to the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. And in that regard, uh, we intend to consult with Congress along the way and will consult with Congress along the way uh, at different steps in the implementation process. I think it worth noting that Secretary Kerry and, and President Obama uh, have selected Ambassador Steve Mull to manage uh, the implementation process, both the interagency side, but also our, our engagement with the Iranians. Uh, he has a group of experts working with him uh, that have deep experience uh, in this, and that he has chosen myself as the nominee for undersecretary uh, to manage, uh, along with Ambassador Mull, our work in the Joint Commission, uh, which will meet regularly to assess the implementation uh, process. It is worth noting that in choosing us, uh, he has chosen career foreign service officers, and he has chosen um, two people who did not participate in the negotiations of the agreement, and therefore he is bringing fresh eyes and objective eyes to an implementation process. Uh, I think this is smart. I think it's important. Uh, but as Ambassador Mull and I uh, carry out this work, uh, we will be consulting with you, the other members of this committee, uh, and your staff. And, and I can assure you that we recognize and understand uh, the importance of, of having uh, the executive branch and the legislative branch having clear understandings of what needs to be done in the implementation process. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Perdue. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. And Ambassador, it's an honor to have you here today. Uh, I appreciate the courtesy of a private meeting with you recently, and uh, I want to publicly, for the record, applaud your career. I know you raised your kids abroad. Uh, uh, you probably saw your mother uh, much less than you would have liked uh, through your career, but uh, uh, we're here today. I, I just applaud your career and thank you for being here and for be being willing to take on this new responsibility. I'd like to move to the global security crisis that we talk privately about. You know, I, I see it on three levels. One, we've got a power vacuum out there that uh, has created uh, a, a rise again of these power rivalries, uh, China and Russia. Uh, we saw another power vacuum in Iraq um, into which uh, ISIS has stepped and created all sorts of problems in Syria, Iraq, and, and several other countries in the region and in sub-Saharan Africa. And then, of course, now the, the Iran nuclear deal that, as you well said uh, privately and, in, and I think just now, that uh, it's all in, in the implementation. I'd like to focus on Syria. I know we've got talks coming up tomorrow. Um, what are the prospects of those talks? And are you concerned that uh, in your new role, I mean, are you concerned about Iran being a part of the, of the dialogue this early in the conversation and also Russia, as far as I can, can see? I mean, Bashar al-Assad has been propped up by Putin and by Khamenei, uh, without their help, he would have been gone, in my opinion, a long time ago, and he would not have had the wherewithal to continually uh, barrel bomb his people and gas his own people. So uh, are you a little concerned about having the arsonist 
you know, trying to help put the fire out uh, in, in these talks this weekend? No, th thank you very much, Senator. And again, I'm very grateful for your willingness to see me and, and to talk about these issues. Um, as Secretary Kerry, I think, noted in, in his testimony here, and I know as um, Assistant Secretary Patterson and, and General Allen noted, um, you know, our objectives in Syria uh, remain degrading and defeating ISIL, fostering a negotiated political transition, and helping Syrians lay the foundation uh, for a free and pluralistic future, but a future without ISIL and without um, Bashar al-Assad. Um, in this regard, Secretary Kerry. I'm sorry, is it still the administration's position in your understanding, uh, in your role as counselor, um, is it still our position that uh, Bashar al-Assad has to go? Is that a prerequisite for this? Correct. Okay, thank you. Um, and, and Secretary Kerry, in his effort to, to fashion a, a global uh, response to events in Syria, as he said, trying to chart a, a course out of hell, uh, he has determined that there is a moment in time uh, in which it is important to bring together major players and actors to address events uh, inside of Syria. Uh, part of this process builds off of earlier processes, such as the, uh, the, the meetings in London and, and Geneva, but the insertion of uh, Russia and Iran in a very aggressive way in Syria uh, has also created a different kind of dynamic. Uh, the Russian and Iranian presence uh, or, or um, support for Assad is nothing new, uh, but the, uh, uh, the, the Russian military presence and airstrikes is something new. Uh, the presence of Iranian troops and, and uh, special forces is something new and, and worrisome. Uh, and for this reason, uh, the Secretary thought it was time to bring everybody together and effectively um, call their bluff, determine whether or not their uh, commitment to fighting, their, their public commitment to fighting ISIL and terrorism uh, is a meaningful one and the extent to which they are prepared uh, to work broadly with the international community to convince Mr. Assad that during a political transition process he will have to go. So you, as you stated earlier, you've got, I think you said, um, ex you've got great experience in post-conflict societies. So as, is it possible that Iran would support a secular government uh, after Bashar al-Assad uh, prospectively uh, leaves? I don't know the answer to that question, sir, and I think we're only going to uh, determine whether or not that is possible by engaging. Uh, you know, our engagement is not going to affect our intent or our purpose. Uh, we are hopeful that we can establish an, an environment in Syria where we can address the underlying political problems and allow the Syrians to determine their future and to do it in a way in which they're not responding uh, to Iran or to Russia. I'm almost out of time, but I do want to move on to Venezuela uh, because of your vast experience here. I know that you've led conversations there. Talk to us just a minute about our role in ensuring that they have a true and open and free election uh, in the upcoming election. No, thank you for that question. It's, a, it's an important one. Uh, as we've engaged uh, with, with Venezuela, uh, we, we focused on a variety of issues that are important to us. Uh, first, uh, when, we, when we first began our engagement, it was about uh, insisting that Venezuela establish a date for legislative elections. When we first engaged, they had not established such a date, and there was concern uh, about whether or not they would establish such a date. Uh, secondly, it was, uh, we focused on political prisoners. Uh, uh, not just high-profile prisoners like Leopoldo Lopez and Antonio Ledesma and Daniel Ceballos, uh, or Ceballos uh, but also uh, a group of students and other political prisoners uh, between 77 and 80, depending on who's doing the counting, uh, who were being held by 
the government of, of Venezuela for what we believe to be uh, political purposes. We wanted to make it very clear that we did not agree with that and we thought it important that these people be released and allowed to participate uh, in, in public life. And then finally, connected to the, the broader purpose of, of elections, uh, trying to convince Venezuela that it was in their interest to ensure international uh, electoral observation uh, of the upcoming elections uh, in order to in, uh, validate the results of the elections and allow all Venezuelans to understand that their votes were, um, uh, were, were freely cast and, and counted in, in valid fashion. Uh, these remain uh, our principal objectives. We do have an electoral date. Uh, we were able to uh, accomplish that. Uh, the political prisoners, for the most part, are still in prison. Some have been released, uh, but we continue to advocate for them, and we've helped create a, a larger environment in Latin America where advocating for these, these political prisoners uh, is, is now more common and more direct. We see it in the OAS, we see it in the Inter-American Human Rights Commission, and we see it in a variety of, of other fora. And we continue to work with our partners around the issue of electoral observation. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Menendez. Go ahead, Senator Kane. Yeah. Okay. We have a very that, courteous committee. <laughs> New Jersey civility is always appreciated. <laughs> thank you, Mr. Chairman, and, and thank not, you. Notwithstanding what Governor Christie said last. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Ambassador Shannon. Um, a couple of points. Um, your your long career has included service in some very dangerous areas. Um, talk about the evolving security conditions under which our uh, our folks have to uh, operate around the globe and your sensitivity to those issues in this new role. Well, Senator, thank you very much. And uh, I am a proud member of the Commonwealth of uh, Virginia. And thank you very much for your service, Absolutely. both as, as governor and as senator. We're very lucky to have you. you. Um, you know, today, I, I live in Crystal City and I take the bus to work, which means I get off on Constitution and 22nd and I walk up uh, 22nd Street and enter the State Department through the C Street entrance. And aside from seeing the array of flags of all the countries with whom we have uh, diplomatic relations, I also see on, on both walls on either side, both the right and the left side of our entranceway, uh, the names of all the Foreign Service officers, uh, locally employed staff, and family members uh, who have given their lives uh, in the service of the United States of America. So every day it is impressed upon me the danger of our job, but also the honor of serving uh, and the importance of being able to make that kind of commitment. This is really a wall of honor for us, and it's also a wall of, of inspiration. But at the same time, we don't want to add any more names. The first name was added, well, the first name was uh, Walter Palfrey, who died, he was lost at sea in 1780. First American diplomat lost in service. So from 1780 to today, uh, we have a um, we realize that we operate in, in a dangerous world. But as I noted, we're in a especially dangerous and dynamic moment around the globe. And so how we manage security and, and the kinds of structures we put in place are, are going to be key to how well we can protect our people and how well we can manage risk. And whether it's uh, you know, through our, our kind of high threat post review process, whether it's through the determinations we make on whether or not we keep embassies open, whether it's how we determine expedited uh, uh, or I mean uh, authorized departure uh, or ordered departure in missions. These are all processes that have to be fluid, they have to be dynamic, they have to be agile, and they have to reflect the facts on the ground. But aside from that, I believe we need to do more in terms of, of training our officers to be their own security officers. In other words, allowing them to understand better the environment they're gonna be in and allowing them the, uh, the training and the tools necessary to protect themselves. The reality is, 
we are an expeditionary diplomatic service. Uh, we have 275 diplomatic missions around the world. We have about 10,000 American diplomats and civil servants posted around the world. And we have over 47,000 locally employed staff, and we're responsible for them all. I, um, this is something that Senator Perdue and I have worked on a lot, and I hope that we will reach a point soon where we can give a green light to the State Department's long plan to build an enhanced security training facility for embassy personnel. Uh, a point on Iran um, to pick up the comments that uh, both the chair and ranking member met. Um, when we were working on the Review Act, the administration's attitude really was that they didn't think Congress should have a role in approving an Iran deal, which I thought was, was odd given the fact that the congressional sanctions were such a, an integral part of the negotiation. Um, and I, I would just say I, I hope the administration, you know, will have a different attitude going forward in terms of Congress's role in oversight and implementation of the deal. The deal puts Congress right in the middle of it because in year eight, Congress is required under this deal to dismantle the congressional sanction statutes or we are in breach of the agreement. Just as in year eight, the Iranian parliament is required to permanently accept the uh, additional protocol requirements or they're in breach of the agreement. Uh, there's not going to be a scenario where Congress will kind of be kept in the dark and uninvolved and then suddenly in year eight we'll be asked, okay, re repeal the sanctions statute. It's hard to get a Mother's Day resolution passed in two houses of Congress. The notion that you would get 60 votes in the Senate and a majority vote in the House to repeal the sanctions statutes in year eight if there hasn't been very significant dialogue and trust building and assurances that Congress feels comfortable about We'll be in breach of the agreement if we don't have this really tight uh, uh, kind of communication dialogue and accepted level of congressional oversight over the implementation. So I, I hope that will be your philosophy in the position. Uh, th thank you for that. It, it will be my philosophy. And the, the challenge we're going to face as both uh, an executive branch and a legislative branch is that eight years is a long time. And we will pass through um, at least one other administration and maybe more. Yeah. Uh, and so in trying to find ways to ensure continuity of purpose and continuity of dialogue is going to be a central part of, of what we're going to do. One last just a, a congratulations. It's premature, but it's congratulations on the effort. Um, the State Department's commitment to really aggressive diplomacy, you know, we're aware of the Iran deal, we're aware of taking a new tack with Cuba, but also the, the U.S. has played a really important role in accompanying the government of Colombia in the negotiations with the FARC. And yesterday, I know there was a, an announcement by uh, President Santos of, hey, we, we, we would hope to get to an internationally monitored ceasefire on New Year's Day. You know, this is the last war that's going on in the Americas. I mean, the, the, there's plenty of problems in the Americas, but the notion of two continents without war, I'm not sure that there's been a time in recorded history where the Americas has been without war. And we're we're close to that. And the U.S. has played a really important role in accompanying Colombia and being an advocate and an ally in those negotiations. And I just give credit to the State Department for this kind of focus on important multilateral diplomacy and appreciate your efforts there. Thank you for raising Colombia. Uh, and I want to thank uh, the Congress and this committee in particular for the tremendous work that it's been done over the years, uh, along with the House and the members of the House who have dedicated themselves uh, to Columbia. It's uh, really been a, a stellar group of people, and they've been a, a pleasure to work with, and I've had an opportunity to do it in, in so many different uh, incarnations, from the Director of the Office of Andean Affairs to uh, Deputy Assistant Secretary, worked on the Andes uh, from my uh, posting at the NSC, and then as Assistant Secretary 
and also as counselor, I've been involved in this. And you're right, uh, if uh, the Colombians are able to negotiate this deal, uh, it will be the first time, not only in living memory, but uh, probably since the formation of most of the South uh, American republics in, in the early 19th century, uh, that uh, this hemisphere has, has been at peace, at least in terms of state-on-state -state wars and, and internal uh, conflicts. But the challenge we're gonna face uh, and in this, we're going to be engaging uh, with you, sir, and Mr. Chairman, and, and Senator Cardin with, with this committee about how to ensure that having been Colombia's best partner in war, we're going to be Colombia's best partner in peace. Uh, because Colombia is going to be, is a great nation, but it's going to be a greater nation. Uh, and with Brazil, it will be one of the defining powers of South America as an Andean power, as a Caribbean power, as an Amazonian power, and as a Pacific power, and as a country that will, if it's successful in the peace process, have consolidated its society and been able to extend the reach of the state into the plains of Colombia, uh, it will uh, be a major producer of oil and gas, it will be a major producer of minerals, it will be a major agricultural power, uh, but it will also has a very dynamic and, and um, entrepreneurial people who will be very, very important players uh, throughout the hemisphere. So how we shape that, how we engage with them going forward is going to have a big impact on how successful we are in the hemisphere. Thank you. Senator Menendez. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. And uh, Ambassador, congratulations on your nomination. And considering your distinguished career, it's, uh, I think it's having your mom and dad here and two FBI agents is over the top. I mean, you know, in terms, in terms of guaranteeing your, your nomination. So, uh, on a serious note, uh, I, uh, we had a good conversation, and I listened to some of your responses today, and I just want to quickly over, go over some ground because I think it's incredibly important. So would you agree with me that consultation with this committee and the Senate uh, is an important factor in us having a united front in U.S. foreign policy? Yes, it is. Because uh, what I have experienced both as the former chairman of this committee and as a member is that we get a lot of notification, but not a lot of consultation. And there's a difference. We may not agree at the result of consulting, but at least you'll understand you know, some thoughts of those of us who represent the nation. Uh, and, uh, and maybe there will be ways to achieve a common goal, but to do it in a different way. And so what I've experienced is a lot of notification, but not a lot of consultation. So I'm glad to hear that you're committed to consultation. Secondly, uh, do you agree with me that the TIP report needs to be the gold standard? Yes, I do. I think I could probably not find anybody on this committee who believes that the last report did not have, uh, did not meet that standard. Uh, in the questions of Malaysia and Cuba and some other places, uh, the justifications belie the facts. Uh, and the reality is, is that you can't say that certain things in a reporting period that happen to be good for that country will be included, even though they're beyond the reporting period. And certain things that are bad, uh, that are also beyond the reporting period, don't get included. So either we include everything beyond the reporting period, good and bad, or we stick to the reporting period, but you can't go beyond the reporting period for what's good, but not beyond the reporting period for what's bad. And I'm referring particularly to Malaysia and the mass graves that we found with the Rohingya. So that wasn't considered, 
and what Malaysia was doing in that context, but some passage of a law that wasn't even uh, yet enforced was considered. So we need to make that the gold standard, and I hope that we can, uh, the understanding the pressures within the department from regional bureaus and whatnot, but it just doesn't work the way it worked the last time, and it undermines our credibility in trafficking in persons. Um, thirdly, would you agree with me that we must respond to violations by Iran of whether it is its nuclear agreement or Security Council resolutions uh, with significant responses or else we will be down a slippery slope in terms of what they think they can get away with? Yes, I do. So I say that because we, uh, regardless, and there are members of this committee that have voted both ways, I oppose the agreement. I think it's aspirational. I hope it works now that it's, that's the law. But by the same token, I don't think any of it can work if Iran thinks it can get away with violating, as it largely has done for the past decade and a half in violating international uh, United Nations Security Council resolutions, international law, and still largely develop the nuclear program. If we're gonna get anything out of this agreement, it has to be enforced. And with the ballistic missile uh, test that they had, I don't think you're gonna end up with a UN uh, resolution that's going to sanction them because Russia will probably negate it with its veto, so we have to be thinking about how we're gonna to respond to that, otherwise we're headed down a slippery slope. And I know this won't be the mainstay of your portfolio, but the reality is you're gonna have as the third highest ranking person at the State Department some say in this, and I hope that you will uh, hold the view that you've publicly described here as saying it's important within the deliberations of the department. Thirdly, fourthly, Venezuela. You and I had a long discussion of this. And I have to be honest with you. Uh, I appreciate what you were trying to do when you met with Deosdado Cabello, who, uh, who is uh, supposedly uh, by some of our uh, agencies described as someone who is involved in narco-trafficking. I also realize he has an elected position inside of Venezuela. But uh, that's a question for the future as a policy. How far do we go with individuals who, while they may hold the position, are involved in, the con in this context in narco-trafficking? But in Venezuela, you have a process in which we don't have yet international observers. You have a sham trial where the prosecutor ultimately flees, one of the prosecutors flees the country and says that he was under pressure to ultimately uh, pursue the case in the manner in which he did. Lopez is convicted in a sham trial, I think 13 years in jail. Uh, and you have a series of other human rights activists and political dissidents jailed. And you have the Maduro regime saying publicly, in essence, well, we're going to win the elections, which basically means we're going to win it one way or the other. Where the polls don't indicate they'll win it at the ballot box, but we're going to win it. So. My concern is, and the, the thing I think you do bring to this job that others don't have is your combination of Latin America and Africa experience, but my concern is that we are not willing to challenge regimes, whether it be in Venezuela or in Cuba where we are ceded everything to the uh, regime and have seen nothing, nothing in terms of human rights 
uh, and uh, democracy issues. So talk to me about challenging a regime when the diplomacy has not achieved what we want. And you know, we passed this law on, that came out of this committee on Venezuela and sanctions. The president invoked some of it. There's still a lot more that could be invoked. But when is the demarcation in which we say, okay, our diplomacy hasn't worked at this point, how do we back it up with some strength? Thank you very much, Senator. And uh, let me thank you for your tremendous commitment uh, to Latin America and also to the State Department and diversity within the State Department. It's been an important motivator for us, an important driver of how we shape uh, the diplomats of, of the future. Uh, in, in regard to the TIP report, um, uh, let me um, reiterate that um, I'm committed to addressing the concerns of this committee and members of the committee who, that have expressed their concerns to me. Uh, as I noted previously, it's very worrisome for me uh, that a, a report that should be a gold standard uh, is uh, seen as, um, as not being that. And so I will do everything I can uh, to address those concerns and ensure that uh, we are examining countries under the rubric of the report with all the rigor that is required by, by law. Uh, and in regard to Iran violations, sir, I, I can guarantee you that uh, we will be responding to them. Um, we recognize, uh, as important as the JCPOA is, uh, it has a set of sanctions tied to it um, that are nuclear-related, but there are sanctions related to ballistic missiles, to human rights, and, and to terrorism. And we will continue to pursue those sanctions and pursue violations whenever we see them. Uh, we, uh, we understand that our relationship with Iran is a complicated one. But again, our success in the JCPOA and its implementation uh, will only happen if we show a clear willingness uh, to pursue violations elsewhere under other sanctions regimes. And in regard to, to Venezuela, we did have a good conversation yesterday, and I appreciated the conversation, and I appreciated your point of view. I understand it, and I, I appreciate the concerns that others have expressed. Um, as we look at um, what's next in Venezuela, so much of, of our, our own relationship with Venezuela will depend on what happens uh, around the legislative elections and what happens around the issue of political prisoners. Uh, when I met with Deos Dalo Cabello, uh, as I noted to you earlier, it was with the purpose, first of all, of uh, winning from them a, an, electoral, an electoral date for legislative assembly elections, which we thought was important and essential, first of all, to create a political process that would allow the Venezuelan people to express themselves, but also to begin to create a, a, a a larger uh, environment for dialogue uh, in, inside of Venezuela. Its secondary purpose was to save the life of Leopoldo Lopez, who at the time was in the fourth week of a hunger strike. And we were looking for a, 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 an action by the Venezuelan government that would convince Lopez to come off his strike. Uh, we believe that Lopez, along with the other political prisoners being held, are an essential part of a broader solution to the kinds of internal challenges that Venezuela faces today. And uh, we will continue to advocate for his release as we have done over time. Uh, it should be noted that as we have engaged with Venezuela, we have never backed off our criticism of Venezuela regarding some of its political behavior and activity. And we've expressed our concern about the politicization of the judiciary uh, and the continued holding of political prisoners. And we will continue to do so. As we look towards the elections, um, the ability of the elections to be perceived uh, as free elections and the vote count is valid is going to be a very important part of how we manage the next step in the relationship. And in that regard, uh, the legislation that you worked on and that other members of this committee and Senate worked on will be an important tool for us, and we will use it if necessary. Well, I hope you use the tool. I, I look forward to supporting your, uh, your uh, 
uh, confirmation uh, before the committee in the Senate. Senator Kearns. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, thank you, Ambassador, uh, for your service. Um, thank you to your family for sustaining and supporting Ambassador Shannon's service and his immediate family service over so many years and uh, so many uh, challenging environments. I uh, will concur uh, with my colleague from New Jersey that uh, your long service in Latin America and in Africa, I think, brings a particular and needed strength. Uh, your service as a member of the career foreign service officer, I think, also brings an important and vital um, perspective. Um, so let me just broadly reference three questions and then you take as much time as you wish and allocate your time accordingly. Um, ultimately, I'd be interested in hearing on behalf of the 10,000 foreign service and civil service employees of the department what you think are the most important, most needed steps uh, to continue to attract and retain and motivate uh, the best and brightest to serve uh, in these difficult and demanding and important posts around the world. Um, I'm also interested you succeed Wendy Sherman. Um, hopefully you will be confirmed. I'll support your confirmation. And um, she placed a real focus on peacekeeping. Um, peacekeeping is difficult business. It's expensive. It's um, full of uh, complications. Um, there is an African standby force that is in the early stages of being uh, perhaps ready to actually serve on the continent. Uh, they've been doing some uh, recent exercises in South Africa. And I'd be interested in sort of how you see the future of peacekeeping and how we make it sustainable from a cost perspective. And then last, um, I'm concerned about how we support economic growth in Africa while also supporting democracy and governance. There's been a hotly contested election in uh, Tanzania. The results were just announced in the last hour. Um, they were invalidated in Zanzibar earlier today. Um, we have a number of critical other elections this year. Um, how do we balance those two, promoting economic growth and development um, while still advocating for our values over the values of some of our competitors in Africa. No, thank you very much, Senator. I appreciate the questions. And, and let me thank you for the, the trip you made to the State Department to meet with some of our mid-level officers. It was a, a great experience for them. Uh, but, uh, but we really appreciate the respect you showed us, and we look forward to inviting you back. Uh, so thank you for that. Um, you know, in regard to your first question, uh, uh, how to attract and keep uh, the best people, that's something we struggle with every day. Um, uh, Luckily, we have a really interesting portfolio, uh, and so we tend to attract people uh, who are smart, motivated, and expeditionary in mindset. They want to go places, and they want to do things, uh, and, and so that's important to us. But the challenges we face are real. Um, the, the, the challenges that uh, dual-career families face in the Foreign Service, the challenges that uh, families with children with special needs face, uh, and then the, the broader security environment that we spoke about earlier also affect how people understand uh, the Foreign Service and the degree to which they enter the Foreign Service or stay as officers. Um, we are really, at this point in time, um, um, going through a generational change in the Foreign Service. 60% uh, of the Foreign Service, nearly 67%, it's about 57-something uh, percent of the Foreign Service have served for 10 years or less. And this is quite remarkable. Uh, it means that we have a whole cadre of, of younger officers uh, who are going to be our next uh, uh, generation of, of leaders who have served in the Foreign Service during a period of, uh, of combat in Iraq and Afghanistan and uh, a, a larger global struggle uh, against terrorism. And in many instances, some of these classes have gone uh, in large numbers to Iraq, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and, and other areas 
first, where they're unaccompanied uh, postings, but secondly, where the, the challenges they face are, are quite significant. And how we help these officers understand a larger world, how we mentor them, how we train them, how we enhance their language capability uh, is going to be a big part of our success uh, in the future. And so one of the, the, the assignments I'm going to take on myself is really a mentoring assignment, and it's uh, intent on engaging with our geographic bureaus, uh, with the National Foreign Affairs Training Center, with the Foreign Service Institute, and with the Secretary to ensure that he can leave behind a legacy of enhanced language training, enhanced regional studies, and an ability to do more in the field to help officers become familiar with the areas they're working on and areas they, they want to continue to work on. But let me share one quick anecdote with you. As, as I go around and talk to younger officers, especially in the Middle East, one of their biggest concerns is security, but not whether they're going to be okay. Their concern is, are they going to be able to do their job? Uh, and this is where we talked about earlier. They want the tools to be able to do their job. And that means the security environment that protects them, but also their ability to understand and interpret the environment they're in. And, and in this regard, we've got a lot of work to do because there are some places that are just deadly for us uh, and we just either can't go there or we have to go there under very careful conditions. Um, but uh, again, this is something I'm really focused on because this is going to have a big impact on uh, some of our best and brightest as to whether they stay. If they think their career is going to be uh, spent in a container or behind an embassy wall mm -hmm. and if, they're not if they can only go out in force and with interpreters, they're not going to stay. So we have, to, we have to find a way to deal with this. And then finally, the, 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 uh, you know, Africa is a, a special interest of mine. Uh, I've uh, served in Washington on African affairs, but also in the field uh, on African affairs, and I've, I've been able to, to travel to Africa a lot. The economic growth side is, is really important for this continent. This is the continent of the 21st century, and President Obama, um, through his Africa Leader Summit, highlighted the importance of commercial engagement and presented a different vision of Africa to the American people one of opportunity and, and growth. Uh, and as we, uh, we look into the future, we need to understand that uh, the Chinese have figured this out. And the Chinese are present in Africa in a big way. And so we have to be present in a big way. And that means looking for ways to push American businesses, American investment, and, and create the connectivity around economic growth that is necessary for, um, uh, for Africa to continue to, to grow at the rate that it's growing. I think it's the fastest growing continent in the world in terms of, of uh, uh, commerce and investment. Um, but that said, the governance issues are really striking in different parts of Africa. And, and uh, the issues we're facing, whether it be in Tanzania, whether it be in the DRC, whether it be in Burundi, whether it be in Rwanda or beyond, um, how leaders understand their role as elected leaders, how they understand their ability to perpetuate themselves in power, and the degree to which they use state structures uh, to further themselves in power and and don't address the transparency, transparency, accountability, and anti-corruption issues that are really going to be the, the basis for long-term economic growth and development uh, is going to be key. And it has to be a central part of our engagement in Africa. And I believe it is. And I think with our Assistant Secretary, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, we have been really dynamic, really pushing hard on these issues. Not always successfully because of the nature of, of some of the, the countries that, that we've been working in, but we haven't given up. And uh, I can assure you that, that governance is going to be a big part of, of how we engage in Africa, Africa because absent that, uh, ec the right kind of governance, that economic growth is not going to have the social impact it needs to have.
Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank, Thank you. you. Um, as you know, there'll be some follow-up questions, and we'll keep the record open until Monday for both of the nominees. But at this point, uh, again, thank you for your willingness to serve, for having your family here, for their service to our country, and uh, we look forward to your confirmation. Thank you very much. Okay. I'm very grateful. Yes, sir. Next, we'll consider the nomination of Laura Hallgate, nominee to be U.S. Representative to the Vienna Office of the United Nations and U.S. Representative to the International Atomic Energy Agency, commonly called the IAEA. This role requires an agile ambassador capable, capable of representing U.S. position with a diverse array of U.N. organizations from the U.N. Office on Drugs and Crime to the U.N. Division of Management, the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty Organization, of which we're not a party, the Wasserman Arrangement, and the UN Commission on International Trade Law, among others. Perhaps the most visible to this committee, given the ongoing engagement on the JCPOA with Iran, will be the nominee's representation of the United States at the International Atomic Energy Agency. I recognize that you, Ms. Holgate, have de dedicated your career, as, we've as we have discussed uh, privately, to promoting nuclear security and establishing an environment that staunches the spread of nuclear materials. But the challenges of the position may be daunting. You will be called upon to hold a strong line in the face of pressure from our partners who, in, in order to open economic relations with Iran, may seek to close the door on old allegations and turn a blind eye to previous military dimensions of the program that may provide indicators necessary for the IAEA to monitor the program going forward. You may be called upon to defend US, uh, key U.S. positions in the face of opposition from non-aligned movement, from the non-aligned movement. You may have to stand alone to adequately defend U.S. national security interests. I hope you will explain how you intend to fulfill these obligations in this role and the expectations you have for your ability to successfully represent the U.S. While we have the opportunity, I'd also like for you to discuss your government's our government's current efforts to counter nuclear smuggling and how you may use this position, if confirmed, to further ensure the security of nuclear material globally. I appreciate your attendance before the committee today and look forward to growing our relationship should you be confirmed. With that, I would like to recognize our distinguished ranking member, Senator Cardin. Well, let me also uh, welcome Laura Holgate. Thank you very much for your longstanding public service. And as was pointed out uh, by the previous witness, this is a family uh, commitment. We thank you and your family for your willingness uh, to serve our country in this critically important position. You bring uh, a host of qualifications uh, to this uh, nomination. A senior position at Department of Energy and Department of Defense, a, a career that prevents states and terrorists from acquiring and using weapons of mass destruction. You're currently the senior director of the Weapons of Mass Destruction, Terrorism, and Threat Reduction at the National Security Council. You come well prepared uh, for the challenges in Vienna. And I say that because, uh, yes, there are the direct responsibilities that you have on the organizations in Vienna uh, under the United Nations and the IAEA and others. But it's also working with two other very important missions that we have, the host mission for Austria as well as the OSCE mission that you and I had a chance to talk about. All are housed in Vienna. So you're part of a 
diplomatic team that we have in a critically important place where major decisions are being made. Obviously, the focus today is very much on the responsibilities and the implementation of the Iran Agreement by the IAEA. And uh, as we talked privately, and I'll repeat now, uh, and as I pointed out uh, to Ambassador Shannon, your openness with us in, is critically important, and I appreciate the commitments that you've made in that regard. Mr. Chairman, I'm also pleased to note that Sam Nunn, a former member of this body, who worked closely with Laura Hallgate during the eight years she spent at the Nuclear Threat Initiative, has written a letter on her behalf touting Mrs. Hallgate, and I quote, superb knowledge, diplomatic skills, and strong passion for reducing global dangers. And I would request that that letter be made part of our record. Without objection. Uh, thank you, Senator Cardin. I will now turn to the nominee. Our second nominee, as we've mentioned, is Laura Hallgate, Holgate, who has been nominated to serve as ambassador and U.S. representative to the Vienna Office of the United Nations and the International Atomic Energy Agency. Currently, Ms. Holgate has advised the president for over six years in the position of special assistant to the president and senior director for weapons of mass destruction, terrorism, and threat reduction at the National Security Council. She received her Bachelor of Arts from Princeton University and a Master's in Science from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. We welcome you. Uh, if you could summarize your thoughts in about five minutes, we will look forward to questions. And again, uh, congratulations on your nomination. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Cardin, members of the committee. I'm honored to appear before you today as the President's nominee to serve as the U.S. Permanent Representative to the Vienna Offices of the United Nations the International Atomic Energy Agency, and other international organizations in Vienna. I'm grateful to President Obama and to Secretary Kerry for the confidence they have placed in me. This is a critical moment for the United States' interests in the IAEA and the other UN offices in Vienna. Full implementation of the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action with Iran, successful transition of the Nuclear Security Summit's work to secure and reduce global stockpiles of nuclear materials, to the relevant enduring international institutions, safe and secure expansion of nuclear energy and other peaceful nuclear technologies, and innovative peaceful applications of space science depend active, focused leadership and engagement by the United States to promote our national interests and to advance our contributions toward shared global priorities. My experience inside and outside the US government has prepared me to play this vital role in Vienna. I've worked on reducing nuclear, biological, and chemical threats since 1989. I have served a combined 14 years in the Department of Defense, the Department of Energy, and at the National Security Council, where I led programs and developed policies to keep nuclear materials out of terrorist hands, to destroy chemical weapons in Russia, Libya, and Syria, and to prevent bioterrorism. For eight years, I headed the non-government nuclear threat initiatives programs in the former Soviet Union, and pioneered projects such as the IAEA's Low Enriched Uranium Fuel Bank. Most relevant to the position for which I'm being considered, I have led the preparation of four nuclear security summits, working closely with counterparts from 52 diverse countries and four international organizations, including the United Nations and the IAEA. Each of these positions has contributed to my ability to represent the United States and the President with authority and respect. If I may, Mr. Chairman, I would like to introduce to you and the committee three very special people who have joined me here today. My husband, Rick Holgate, has for 27 years steadfastly supported my career, 
even as he has built his own impressive accomplishments in government service and in the private sector. I am proud and grateful for his encouragement and partnership as we consider this new opportunity to serve. My parents, Susan and Bert Hayes, are here from Richmond as well. My father, as a TWA pilot, opened my eyes, ears, and mind to the wide world beyond Overland Park, Kansas. And my mother set the example of opening our doors and our hearts to people who are different from us. These early influences launched me on the path to today's hearing, and I hope to honor their faith in me by my service. And I deeply appreciate the support of friends and colleagues who are watching these proceedings today. Mr. Chairman, if I am confirmed in this position, I pledge to strengthen and broaden the partnerships with other member states and with the UN agencies in Vienna, and further develop the coalitions that we need to achieve US priorities. Key among these goals is that the IAEA has the tools it needs to monitor implementation of the P5 plus one Iran Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. Going forward, the IAEA, with its proven record of technical expertise, offers us an agency well-placed to ensure robust implementation. I pledge to play my role in keeping Congress informed and engaged as this implementation process proceeds. Another opportunity I see is to leverage the UN Office of Drugs and Crimes technical assistance to counter and prevent terrorism and trafficking through training and other support for judges and prosecutors, especially those in high threat regions and countries. UNODC's efforts complement our own counterterrorism objectives and reach countries we may not be able to engage directly. Finally, if confirmed, I will press international organizations in Vienna to continue to make progress on management reforms, transparency, and fairness. I will encourage intensified efforts towards achieving greater diversity, including at the senior and policy-making levels. I, I will con continue the efforts of my predecessors to strongly support the hiring of qualified American citizens to these organizations. Mr. Chairman, the specialized and technical agencies in Vienna foster activities and technologies that affect the lives of every citizen every day. From combating the spread of nuclear weapons and human and arms trafficking, to harnessing the power of the atom to, pr to, promote nuclear, to promote human health and reduce and eliminate hunger, to utilizing space for communication, disaster early warning, and exploration and research. If confirmed, I would work in close consultation with this committee and the Congress to ensure that U.S. values and priorities are fully reflected in our positions and that U.S. contributions and resources are expended with care. We owe the American people and the people all over the world, no less. I thank you for the opportunity to, to appear before you today, and I look forward to your questions. Well, thank you very much. Uh, if you would explain, I know we have uh, a gentleman, uh, former Ambassador Stephen Mall, who will be overseeing the implementation. How will your role and his role interact? Well, thank you, sir. If confirmed, I would be continuing as, uh, I would be part of Ambassador Mall's team of interagency partners. The current charge in the uh, UNV mission participates in those conversations, uh, those interagency meetings remotely, uh, and is in regular contact with Ambassador Mull. I would expect to continue and intensify that level of engagement uh, in the interagency policy process. And the role in, the, in Vienna is to be the eyes and ears on the ground of what's going on, not just the formal presentation of information from the Secretariat, but understanding the trends the issues, the mood, uh, how the conversations are going, and being sure that those are reported back uh, into the U.S. policy process 
Also being alert to opportunities uh, to improve activities or steps that may need to be taken and to be sure that those are incorporated into our government-wide implementation efforts. Who, who do you actually, uh, uh, if confirmed, who will you actually receive direction from here in Washington relative to positions that you take? The letter of commission for uh, ambassadors typically says that directions come from the president and from the secretary of state, sir. Um, the, my, rep my chain, my reporting chain goes through uh, Assistant Secretary Crocker uh, and then up through um, the, the position that we just uh, had the nominee for. Um, but these, these issues are addressed uh, in a, a uh, interagency process and a whole of government effort. And I will, if confirmed, play the role that I'm assigned in that context. I know you're going to get some questions from someone, uh, whether QFR and personal, um, in a personal way, relative to uh, whether you're involved in the negotiation of the JCPOA, and so I'd like to give you the opportunity publicly to state what your involvement was. I appreciate that question, uh, Senator. As we discussed in our conversation, which I appreciated, uh, I was not part of the negotiating team, nor was I privy to the judgments made in, in the process of that negotiation. I am, however, familiar with its contents and I am uh, fully prepared to vigorously support its implementation in the IAEA. And will you have the opportunity in this position, if confirmed, to be able to read the side agreements that were negotiated? Mr. Senator, the, the side agreements uh, that are referred to are actually uh, safeguards agreements that are bilateral agreements between the IAEA and the member state. Those are safeguards confidential and those are not shared with any member states. I hadn't planned to go down this route, but I'm just curious then, um, what kind of oversight role do you have in this position? Well, the international- I mean, I mean in other words, so you have the director so the director is just able to negotiate whatever the director wishes and the folks who do what you do have no oversight role, no, no uh, board of directors type role relative to the, to the entity. Senator, it's my understanding that safeguards agreements are bilateral agreements between the secretariat and the member state. That's true for every country that's a member of the IAEA. The U.S. has a similar safeguards agreement that is not public, is not available to other member states. This is part of how the IAEA maintains the confidentiality of information that is supplied in connection with that. The IAEA is, however, required to report on its findings on confirmation and verification of the commitments made in these safeguards agreements. And those are the reports that are provided to member states and that uh, we will be providing uh, to the Congress as they come from the Secretariat. And again, I know you have nothing to do with how this has been set up. This is not directed to you. I'm just, I'm just again, I had not planned to go down this route. So that's odd, it would seem to me, that um, the safeguards agreement is the agreement as to how the work is going to be carried out, so you're not really, you know, conveying any confidential information. You're just talking about how you're going to deal with that entity to uh, find out, or that country to find out how they're progressing in the agreements that are made. Why would that be kept uh, away from the folks, if you will, that are overseeing this particular organization? I mean, I'm just curious as to why you think that would be the case. Mr. Senator, the safeguards agreements include a range of technical details, including design of nuclear facilities, including proprietary information about how those facilities operate, 
an extreme amount of technical detail that, can, that helps the agency understand where it needs to apply safeguards, has, how it has to do with the process that is executed in that facility. Those are, that is not information that countries are eager to share with other countries, and frankly, from a non-proliferation point of view, that's not information that we're eager uh, to, be, to have made public. One of the things that concerned people, no matter how they ended up voting relative to the agreement, I think there was a concern, universal concern, about the, the issue of possible military dimensions and the fact that the, all Iran had to do was go through the process and whether the IAEA came up with a report that was an A-plus report or a D-minus report, it didn't matter as long as the process uh, was gone through, if you will. That was very concerning, I think, to, to a lot of people and somewhat shocking. And I guess I would ask you, let's say um, you're confirmed and, um, you know, the report comes back as a D minus. In other words, we really didn't learn much because they didn't provide much information, which, again, concerned a lot of people. Um, what is it in this particular role that you would be able to do about that, if anything? Senator, as I understand it, uh, the, the IAEA will be delivering uh, its report in mid-December. Uh, if I am fortunate enough to, to achieve your confidence by then in order to be there, uh, at that time, uh, that, that report will be provided to the Board of Governors of the IAEA, and uh, the, the Board will have a chance to act uh, and engage on the basis of, of that information. The uh, JCPOA is focused on the future. Uh, rather than the past, and so its mission is to make sure that those activities do not occur again, uh, that if in fact they, there are steps taken towards uh, possible military uh, activities of Iran, uh, that those are alerted to, uh, that those are identified by the IAEA, alerted to member states, and in a timely fashion that allows us to take steps to prevent them from happening again. But you do agree with all the technical background that you have that having knowledge as to how far they've gone in the past towards weaponization is an important element in discerning how quickly in the future uh, they will be able to move towards that same goal, is it not? Yes, sir. Knowledge is absolutely a, an important component of uh, approaches to a military program, but all the knowledge in the world is, does not get you to a weapon if they don't have material. Uh, if they don't have the wherewithal to make material that could be used as a weapon, and that is the mission of the IAEA, to, to monitor in an unprecedentedly uh, intrusive way from the mines all the way through to the reactor and after uh, every piece of nuclear material that is used uh, in Iran. And that is where we gain the confidence that uh, that knowledge will not be misapplied. I'll move on to Senator Card. My time is up. I probably will have some more questions. Uh, I'm going to follow up on your question first. The Director General of the IAEA reports to the Board of Governors. You're our representative on the Board of Governors. We expect that you will have access to all information you need to properly manage the Director General, the IAEA, and represent the United States. And I don't disagree with your analysis that the agreements we're referring to are confidential agreements between the uh, negotiated by the IAEA and the member states and confidentiality is, is maintained. Uh, Iran's somewhat different. During the negotiations of the JCPOA, 
a representative of the United States was allowed to review those documents, and I don't know whether that was done directly by the IAEA or by Iran, but it was done. And I, I mention that because I think, as Senator Corker has pointed out, we're going to need a, a, a clear understanding as to how Iran is proceeding, uh, particularly as it relates to its military dimensions, but there's more to it than that, and a working understanding of the arrangements between the IAEA and the uh, Iran is going to be uh, essential for you to be fully read into that, and I think you will, and then we need your candid uh, assessments as to how much uh, information we received and whether it's in compliance with the JCPOA. So I just really wanted to underscore that point. I understand confidentiality, but I also understand the responsibilities of the Board of Governors, and you're the key player in that regard, so you have responsibility here. Uh, let, let me um, just ask you an open question on this, which is, uh, where do you see the greatest challenges within the IAEA in, in assuring compliance by Iran of its commitments under the JCPOA, which comes, that part that comes under the responsibilities of the IAEA? Well, Senator, thank you for that question. The, I think the most challenging components of this agreement are going to be these novel aspects of the, the safeguards activities that the IAEA is, is being asked to undertake under the JCPOA. Uh, the, the work that they're doing at the mine, in the milling, in the conversion process uh, of how uranium is handled within the country is unprecedented. Now, the U.S. has continued its long tradition of providing training, information, technical support, equipment to the IAEA safeguards community, and uh, that, will, that uh, continues to be the case, and it will be even more important uh, as these safeguards uh, inspectors are trained for these new roles. So the U.S. stands fully ready uh, to play its traditional role of strong support to make sure the agency has the, the people, the resources, and the technology it needs to carry out these new roles. And even though they will not be uh, inspectors carrying U.S. passports, the United States plays a critical role here as far as training and information, et cetera. I assume that is that, that what you're referring to? That's precisely what I'm referring to, Senator. Thank you. Now, outside of Iran, there's other issues that you're going to be engaged with. The implementation of safe handling of nuclear uh, materials, particularly by those states that are involved in the use of nuclear materials and NPT commitments. Where do you see, uh, with such a focus on Iran and the, the resources being used there, where do you see um, the challenges in a strong commitment towards the MPT safeguards? The safeguards requirements of the IAEA are going to be critical to be applied globally uh, under, under their role uh, under the treaty. The U.S. and other member states uh, have committed uh, to make sure that this is not a zero-sum game from a resource point of view with the resources that are going to be required uh, in support of JCPOA implementation. And there is a formula being worked out uh, in, as, as we speak on the balance between regular assessments and voluntary contributions to be sure that the agency's work in the JCPOA implementation does not interfere with or take away from the work it needs to do all over the world uh, to assure that material is not diverted to weapons programs. And then lastly, if I might, how do you see your role working with other representatives from other countries 
uh, some who were directly involved in the JCPOA, but others that were not, in getting a firm international support for U.S. policies. Well, Senator, that's uh, the essential role of the diplomat, uh, and it's one that I am eager to, to have the opportunity to play if confirmed. Many of these uh, permanent representatives and ambassadors in Vienna are individuals that I have worked with because they represent their countries in the nuclear security summit process. So I begin with some familiarity with uh, some of the key members of the Vienna diplomatic community. Um, certainly, uh, the, the work to, to do to, to assemble coalitions around supporting particular decision-making processes to represent a common face uh, in discussions in the Board of Governors in the General Conference uh, is something that I look forward to and uh, commit to, to doing effectively as I am able. Well, once again, we appreciate your willingness to, to continue to serve. Thank you, sir. Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thanks, uh, Ms. Holgate. As somebody who grew up in Overland Park and has lived in Richmond for the last 31 years, I'm particularly happy to see you and, and your family here. The IAEA has an interesting track record. I, I think it's an organization that generally has a positive track record, not, not unmarred by challenges, certainly. Um, after Iraq and North Korea developed nuclear weapons programs in the covert means, that was, I think, an admitted uh, weakness of the IAEA and others that allowed that to happen. But then the IAEA said, we need a fix, and so they went back to the table to develop the additional protocol that nations now must follow to try to uh, route out that uh, possibility. Um, and so that was a, a, a bad incident in the IAEA's history, but then they reacted to fix it in a, in a good way. The IAEA was, I mean, to our, you know, kind of uh, remaining sadness right in March of 2003 when they said that Iraq didn't have a program of weapons of mass destruction, or at least they could find no cre credible evidence that it did. And that, that conclusion of the IAEA was heavily trashed by a lot of people here. And it turned out the IAEA was right and, and, and we were wrong. That was a momentous moment. Um, but, I'm, but I'm impressed with the organization, but uh, boy, the tasks on the shoulders of this organization are, are pretty uh, monumental. First, does the IAEA have the budgetary um, resources that it needs to do the work that it's on its shoulders, especially in the JCPOA, the commitment there would be, I guess, 130 plus uh, IAEA inspectors in Iran to monitor the JCPOA. Talk to us about the resources the organization has. Well, sir, uh, I appreciate the question, and uh, may I say, go Royals? Yeah, indeed. <laughs> Two zip. We're, we're thrilled. Mm -hmm. um, the, um, the agency's resources to support the JCPOA have been estimated at around 10 million euro. Uh, they believe that about half of that can be accommodated within the existing mm -hmm. safeguards budget without detriment to the other missions that it has inside that budget, uh, and that about 5 million euro will be need to, need to be raised from voluntary contributions from other countries. Uh, the U.S. Uh, is the, the largest contributor of voluntary contributions for a range of projects and activities within the IAEA. Uh, I fully expect that we will play our appropriate role, but that's clearly an area where other countries can contribute. Uh, to the success of the JCPOA, including uh, many of those who were, uh, who who may have been on the sidelines, but but uh, supporting uh, the diplomatic solution that we pursued, and so uh, we do not expect that this will be a, a large challenge uh, for the agency to identify the resources. Well, next next to Iranian intent, the single most important element that will determine whether this JCPOA works or not is the verification 
um, so Iranian intent there, you know, this, we're going to keep our focus on their actions. Their intent is still the most important factor. But the verification mechanisms are what give us the ability to determine that intent. And so the IAEA doing a good job and having the resources to do a good, good job is absolutely critical. And I know you share that view. One of my ho hopes <clears throat> is this. The, the deal um, certainly talks about traditional IAEA protocols, the additional protocol, which Iran accedes to for the first eight years and then I guess legislatively has to decide whether they permanently accept. But in addition, this uh, uh, extra inspection of the supply chain, as you point out, you know, kind of from mine to mill to reactor, uh, the whole supply chain of, uh, of fissile material is, is incredibly important. And what I would love to see, I would hope at the end of that 25-year agreement, that this might have been incorporated as a best practice into the additional protocol so that it wouldn't just be a 25-year commitment that Iran would make. But if Iran agrees to the additional protocol over time, uh, this supply chain monitoring could be added to the additional protocol for Iran and for all nations. I, I think the, uh, this is a new best practice in the agreement in terms of verification. Right now it is only applicable to Iran and only for the 25-year period. Uh, but I would hope, and, and I would like to ask, since I don't know about this, kind of uh, has the additional protocol been modified over time? Does it get modified to include new best practice elements? And would that be a realistic hope that I would have that maybe by the end of 25 years this would become the norm? Well, thank you, sir. And it's always important uh, that the safeguards processes of the IAEA improve over time. And in fact, that they have uh, done so. The JCPOA is explicit, however, that this, these specific uh, innovations are, are unique to this agreement mm -hmm. and do not form a precedent. Mm -hmm. um, that was important uh, to gain agreement uh, to this document, and, and that is the, the intent of those who, who associated with it. Uh, that having been said, as you said, there are best practices that are developed in the implementation of these activities. There are lessons learned. There are new technologies uh, that are identified. Uh, there are ways to uh, accomplish the same goal with fewer people uh, or fewer resources. Uh, and so the IAEA and indeed the whole international community will be learning a lot uh, during this 25-year period. And uh, in our constant effort to improve and enhance IAEA safeguards, we may find that some of those techniques can be applicable uh, to the broader uh, safeguards activities of the agency. Great, great. Thank you so much for your testimony. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you for your willingness to serve. Uh, uh, as you heard with the last witness, there'll be questions that will be coming in until the close of Business Monday. Obviously, you understand the importance of responding to those fairly quickly. We thank your family for being here and their willingness to participate in this. And um, um, with that, the meeting is adjourned. Okay, thank you.